Mordecai. Welcome back to the Origination Podcast, where we speak to the top originators and salespeople in the multifamily industry to try to understand what separates the top performers from the rest of the pack. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Joe Averbuck. The best way I could describe Joe is as the professor of FHA finance. If you're ever in a meeting with Joe, you'll see that that more than selling, he's actually teaching his clients. And I think that's a model that, that a lot of people could gain from. There's also a challenge when you're selling loans, and that is that you're selling at a particular moment in time, and interest rates are at a certain level. But what do you do when interest rates start to move on you? What do you do when they're now up half a point or a point from when, where you started? How do you keep the client still invested in the outcome? We'll talk about that and a lot of other great topics on this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as, as I did. So without further ado, let's speak with Joe. Joe, recording is in progress, so there's no backing out now. I'm really, really excited to have you on, on the podcast. I've been, I've been looking forward to this, this, this conversation. Mostly because I miss our conversations. We used to have very long conversations. You know, I never had to worry about. Uh, sometimes, if I'm interviewing someone, I don't really worry so much about not running out of things to say. But like with you, I'm definitely not worried about running out of things to, for us to talk about. So, so welcome. Thank you, thank you. It's a it's a real pleasure to be on, honor to be on. Um, I'm looking forward to this as well. Awesome. So, I so I'm going to start with. Uh, you know, the question that, that I typically ask people, which is, you know, when, if you were to think about, you know, the earliest sales experience, you know, sometimes when you were selling something, um, anything that comes to mind, it could be grade school, high school, college, post-college, but what, what comes to mind when you think about like earliest sales experience? Earliest sales experience. I would say, uh, yeah. Okay. My earliest sales experience is when I was growing up in Miami beach, a friend of mine and I used to go around town and pick mangoes off of some of the mango trees hmm. that were around. And instead of setting up a lemonade stand, we set up a mango stand uh, on the street trying to sell these awesome fresh mangoes to people as they were driving by. Hmm. And we made sales and it wasn't just like our parents' friends either. Like these were quality produce, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was probably my first, you know, talking to strangers sales experience. And I was probably around eight or nine years old when we used hmm. to do that. Yeah. We did that for a little while. Did you cut the mango also, or you just sold it to them as like a raw whole mango? No, just uh, no food prep. This was no like my prep. dad had one of those like fruit grabber things that you would grab, like pull them off the tree yeah. and it would stay in the basket. And we would go around. We don't know if we asked permission from the mango tree owners either. We kind of just did it <laughs> and uh, set up shop. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you were an eight-year-old trying to, to um, cut a mango, I would feel it's a little dangerous. So I'm glad to hear you. We're not putting your life at risk. Yeah. No sanitary concerns here. Yeah. Either. So. You sold like you set up on, on the street, like on the sidewalk. Yeah. We just kind of put up a folding table, usually in front of my friend's house and uh, on the sidewalk or in the driveway. And 
tried to like, you know, made posters and tried to get people to uh, buy a few mangoes on their way home from work. Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember, so would you, do you remember like just conversing with people like, like getting, you know, just the, was it just kind of a transactional conversation or were you kind of gabbing? Yeah, it was, it was definitely more transactional at the time. It's probably a little bit more being the father now of kids who set up a lemonade stand themselves right yeah. now. It's a little pro- a bit more of people saying, oh, look how cute that is. Yeah. I will patronize as opposed to me convincing somebody they were in the mood for a mango. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you had to put yourself out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just a little yeah. bit, especially yeah, you at have that to age. Put up a shingle. You have to put up a shingle. You yeah, know? exactly. So when did you realize that you were that selling was something that you might want to do as as a career? I would say this. I I don't know if I ever wanted to do selling as a career uh when I first started. But over time and just kind of being exposed and the path that I ended up taking, I realized that selling is really the business equivalent of teaching, right? So I come from a family of teachers. I kind of have the teaching gene in me, Mm -hmm. um, which I enjoy doing, right? I enjoy explaining things to people in ways that they may not have ever heard it explained before or to kind of resonate better or uh, understand it a little better. Yeah. Uh, Those kind of things make me feel good, right? That, that's, that's a good feeling. And selling is really that. When you have a product that you could be an expert in, whether that's an expert in British literature, like my mother was as a high school teacher, right? Or HUD loans, you could sit in the room with very, very intelligent, successful people that don't know that niche like you do. And you can teach them something. Yeah. And, and that puts you on a very different plane than just another guy who's hustling. So I don't really consider selling this. Obviously the hustle is a super important component of it, but I kind of decided that I wanted to be a teacher, Mm. right? But I didn't want to get paid a teacher salary, right? Right. So I kind of tried to figure out what gives me the same feelings that teaching does. And then I ended up committing to a life of sales with a niche that I felt like I could be an expert that not everybody was an expert. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's very interesting, right? Cause, and I'm not shocked to hear you say that, you know, we've talked a lot about your, your teaching ability, right. And it's almost like if I said, well, when did you decide to, to go into sales? Like your reaction is like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I decided to become a teacher and, and this, and, and HUD finance, is a place where you could teach and get paid a lot more money for for successfully teaching than you could if you were, you know, teaching HUD 101, you know, in uh, high school or, or uh, college. Right, for sure. And I think it's all origination. And I don't think it's, you know, necessarily real estate related or specific to a specific, you know, any niche, right? Like the software salesperson, the, you know, the light bulb salesperson, if you become an expert in that niche, there's people that have a need for it and you could teach them something. And if you treat it as a teaching 
type, not everybody wants to get taught, right? So like you have to, <laughs> you know, you have to kind of rein that in sometimes also. It can't just be like unsolicited. Let me teach you something. Yeah. Uh, but if it's a mutually beneficial conversation, you could add value to somebody's existing business by teaching them something and they'll pay yeah. you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if all, I mean, I, I don't think all salespeople take that approach. You know, I think there's, there's kind of like, let me tell you enough um, features to get you to sign. Right. And then it's just about, it's really about me. And as a, as the salesperson, I just want, I want to, I want to get a deal signed up. Right. So it's just, it's, a, it's about me. And, and let me tell you just enough to, oh, and if you like sign up now, we'll give you, you know, we'll throw in a free, you know, toaster oven and, you know, whatever, right. At, at, at a, at a, at a bank for opening up a, a checking account. Right. But I feel like with you, it's, it's, you're actually, you're teaching your goal is to teach them how to fish in some ways, um, rather than giving them, you know, just trying to get them to buy a, a fish, you know? So it's, and they're walking away, not just with, I would, I would imagine that they're, they're walking away, not just with a different understanding of HUD finance, but maybe also a different way of, of looking at their whole business and, and long-term strategy. You know, what, what do you, what do you well, yeah, think? I, I think that that's right. I think that I would rather do that. Meaning the people that we're dealing with in general are very successful professionals. Yeah. Right. So I'm never going to cram certainly to get through to have people have enough time to rethink this decision a thousand times. Right. Yeah. So this, I always say to people, this is a business plan loan, right? It has to fit with the business plan. So, yeah. you know, you have to present things to these professionals in a way where they're really making the decision themselves yeah. to do this right? They have bought into the plan. And then you're right, they're going to reevaluate their entire portfolio in our case, or their entire business model, and then decide which one of these work for this and which ones don't. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to layer my agenda on top of their decision making, even if they've done it the same way for 40 years. Yeah, They might just think, okay, now I understand this better. This really works well for this one, this one, and this one. Yeah let's explore that together. And yeah. then you could have them thinking the same way you would want them to think and keep coming back to you because you are their guy for that yeah. way of thinking. Yeah. Would you sell that? Would you say that, that when, when you're selling you know, the FHA loan product that you're almost selling against it and getting them to make the choice, right? In other words, like, cause you make a good point also where, you know, this happens across the board. I see this also with even signing up for like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan where a client will sign up. They think they're signing up for a bank loan, basically. And maybe with a, a couple other other hoops that they have to jump through, then they get then they find out either through the underwriting process or for better or for worse, after they close, when all of a sudden they have to be submitting their financial statements and you know, all these other other requirements were like, Whoa! This is not what I bargained for, and then it's just kind of like a one one and done you know, situation, right? But with with FHA, even more so because FHA, you know, you can say it's yeah, it's 
60 days to get the underwriting package together, 60 days at, at, at HUD, whatever, but it could also stretch out to a year and there could be all kinds of unreasonable requests on repairs. And, you know, so there, there's going to be a lot of thing uh, of challenges that come at you after you sign that, that deal up. So, so like, how do you approach that in terms of getting someone to actually be committed enough to stick with, you know, not such an enjoyable process? Um, it has to be an aspirational business model that you're yeah. selling. You can't sell rate. You can't yeah. sell, you know, short-term thinking in terms of like, oh, this is the best loan compared to these other loans. Yeah. Right. It has to be coming at the angle of you are setting up your family. You are establishing your business plan for the next 35 years. You are taking the risks and the power of the market out of the equation of your ownership yeah. indefinitely. You still can do whatever you want, right? Like these are still flexible loans. Like we, yeah. we, can, we can predict in exactly what is going to be in a HUD loan even better than in some of the other easier to close loans, you know, five, six, yeah. seven years into the future, right? With prepayment penalties and things like that. But at the end of the day, Somebody has to buy into the business plan of I'm doing this for my grandkids or I am not letting my kids screw this up, right? Yeah. Or I am going to sleep better at night myself because I know that I'm not going to be thinking that I have to refi this at any point in the future. And what's the market going to look like at that point? I want to have some of that peace of mind in my portfolio. I don't care what it takes to get me there that peace of mind is worth all the hoops. Yeah. If you fall into the trap of comparison, you know, Fannie versus HUD versus bank versus CMBS versus LifeCo, the HUD terms might be the best on that sheet. But any small shifts in the market where those other guys can swoop in and say, I'll rate lock you tomorrow. Yeah. They're out. Yeah. And then you did all that work with nothing to show for it. Right. Because you focused on the one thing that you can't control that they're still nervous about. So if, if that's really their nerves, right, then yeah. you don't, that's when you sell against it. Right. Cause yeah. it's like, if that's really you, if you're really going to be watching that tenure every single day and be upset over, you know, eight bip swings. Yeah. And we shouldn't do this. Right. But if you care more about, you know, the, what it's going to look like nine years from now or 19 years from now. Yeah. Like who cares about those eight bips? Yeah. You know, I feel like in that regard, I mean, we're sitting here, it's July, 2022. Yeah. We've seen rates go up by, I don't know, a point and a half or so over the last, you know, seven months. Um, inflation is, is there's a lot, a lot of fear about, about that. Moments of fear are, in some ways are they're tough to sell into, but they're also there's I think there's a benefit to them also. Because when everything is good, there's it's human nature to think that wherever whatever your current situation is is just going to continue indefinitely. Yeah, like you know, last year you think, you know, everyone thought, oh, rates are fine, like yeah, nothing's gonna happen, everything's gonna be fine, right? And so, yeah, all right, like lock, you know, lock in 35-year financing. Sounds good, but I could always just you know keep on refinancing at five years at a time, and everything will be okay, right? All of a sudden now, yeah, the the rug has been pulled out 
from, from, from under the industry, right? And all of a sudden you say like, all right, you have a loan maturing in two years from now or three years from now, right? How do you feel about that? Right? Do you think rates, like, where do you think rates could be three years from now? Right. And almost for, I think probably for the first time, you know, you and I, I think started working in relatively similar timeframes, which is almost, I mean, for me, almost 20 years ago, you've maybe you're, you're less than that, but for, for the first time that I can remember, you can look at the, at the future and say, do you think rates could be 10% in two years from now? And the answer is maybe, I don't know. Right. I mean, the, there, there's, we have, we have run, runaway inflation is what is what the Fed is trying to go after. And they're willing to seems like they're willing to go after rates as aggressively as they need to, because it's the only tool in their toolbox to affect it. So imagine if a year, if, if a year ago you had started the HUD process and now you were locking rates for 35 years and yes, they were half a point or they're maybe a point or whatever more than, than they would have been, but doesn't it feel good to know that you're ne- never going to have to have this stress again if you don't want it? Yeah, definitely. The inflation thing is an interesting, like all the headlines are saying, this is the first time we've seen this in 40 years, right? But it's, but it's interesting to think of the human component of that, right? That means that nobody we're talking to has ever dealt with this in a decision-making role yeah. in their lives, right? So everyone is kind of, you know, shooting in the dark as to what is going to be with this, yeah. Right. Because that means the only people that were decision makers 40 something years ago are now 80 plus years old right now. Right. If they yeah. were 40 at the time when they were making decisions in runaway inflation, they're 80 something. Mm-hmm. So no, n- none of our clients or potential clients has actually lived through and, you know, been in business during runaway inflation. So yeah. everybody is just guessing at this point can't even draw an experience. So you have a lot of fears in the in the market and I'll tell you what's interesting one of the things that's the HUD product for all of its craziness the A7 IRR conversation mm. is the angle with that right now because mm. nobody else has trap doors to lower your rate during the course yeah. of your, your yeah. So if everybody else is running to rate lock because of the fears of it getting higher, that's fine. That makes sense, right? I understand that theory. But you're still locking yourself at that, you know, whatever we are now, above market or, you know, a spike in the market for sure, right? Yeah. You're locking at that spike on a classic agency loan for 10 years, nine and yeah. a half years. Right. And you're going to, and if rates do come back down, if recession does, if those fears happen two, three years from now, you're just sitting on the sidelines watching while everybody who has a HUD loan that still rate locked at a point and a half higher than where they thought they might be, at least potentially has an opportunity to reset, like we have done many times together, right? Over the years on these loans that, you know, have IRR and A7 capabilities, that is an angle right now going forward where somebody who's a HUD borrower at least has an opportunity to take advantage of drops from this elevated position. Yeah. That nobody else has. Yeah. You know, 
people are used to thinking about their investment portfolio and understanding that you need some diversification, right? You're not going to put it all in, you know, this in one stock or, you know, bonds, right? So you realize that you should diversify your holdings. Um, you know, multifamily owners, maybe they don't feel, you know, they're not necessarily diversifying into commercial and industrial, like that may not be the kind of diversification that they're after. But I don't think that that owners are used to thinking about their debt as a portfolio that they should diversify as well. Yeah. And there's some stuff, it's like, why does, why, why do you want to have like in an inflationary environment, why do you want to have some gold, right? Gold, you know, it's, it's not going to run, you know, you're, the returns are who knows what, but why do you, why do you go for those types of, of things? Well, because you know that there's that, that it may not, um, you're not going to have like the runaway gains, right? You're not going to have, you know, you're not going to 10 X your investment in gold, but you also know it's probably going to retain its value, right? And it's going to be, and it's going to, it's that portion of your investment, right? When the, when the stock market drops by 30%, you're going to be very happy that you, that you have, you know, and I wonder if like one way that you could market, you know, the FHA product is almost as like the, um, it's like debt gold. You know, that, that, you know, some, yeah, portion. I always say, I, I, I say similar things. I call it the fixed income component of your portfolio, right? Cause I yeah. look at it like bonds, right? Like it, it's, it's government bonds. That's literally what we're talking about here. Yeah. Right. And look, the whole power and the whole, you know, let's call it different way of thinking with HUD is the fact that there's no balloon. Yeah. Right. And I ask people all the time, like, what is not having a balloon worth to you? Hmm. And for leverage you know, borrowers, it's worth nothing. <laughs> and rightfully yeah. so, right? Like you don't get any benefit. You don't get any of that. You're not worried. You, you're taking your risk off the table in that way, right? Yeah. So that makes sense. And then some people, especially the high leverage folks, it's worth a ton. And it's worth the process and it's worth sitting around and they're not so worried about the rate because that no balloon is worth everything to them Yeah, for future stability. That's yeah. the fixed income component, right? Like it's the same thing. Uh, you don't have the ups and downs, right? You can't go back and tap it for a supplemental. You can't, right? Like you can't take advantage of certain things in the market with these HUD loans, but you don't have the downside risk. Yeah. And a lot of people, especially multifamily, call it private capital, middle market type investors, who it's actually their own family's money. Downside yeah. risk is probably way more of a consideration than upside return. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Joe, let, let's switch directions a, a little bit. So I want to talk about, you know, brokered versus direct business. You know, you, you've built... Um, you've have, you've had a great, you know, clientele that's been direct, but you've also done maybe almost more than anyone I know, like you've actually educated brokers also about how to sell for you. It kind of expanded your, your sales outreach that way. So what, what are your thoughts? Just general if, let's say if someone was starting out in the business and they said, you know, should I kind of do go direct or, or brokered, like any, any kind of big thought, big picture thoughts about direct versus brokered, you know, advantages, disadvantages of both models. I am first and foremost, a direct guy. 
right? Mm-hmm. But that I think is more because of my niche specialty in the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, as just really somebody who focuses on HUD loans. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that you can build a direct clientele when your niche expertise is narrow enough. But I'm a huge fan of brokers, right? Like I started my career at Marcus and Millichap, spent a little bit of time at Meridian. Like the value of good brokers is tremendous, right? To the lender and to the client. So this is not a knock on that at all, right? I think from a transactional angle, meaning if I was really focused on Fannie and Freddie, which handles a lot of the transactions of the world, acquisitions, right? Um, then good brokerage relationships is probably the angle I would take as my mm-hmm. core you know, focus, right? And I do believe, like you said, educating brokers to... The key with educating brokers is really, and this is true to an extent, but really probably one of the hardest lifts we have in the lending multifamily game is what's the difference between you and any other lender, Mm. right? In a commodity product, that's a very difficult explanation, especially from a broker who's not in the weeds necessarily. Their job is to present all options and they have agency as one of the options. To them, they don't really necessarily dig deep enough to know the difference between the processing, you know, relationships, whatever you want to call the differentiators between, you know, the high quality lenders, you know, top tier lenders, how important is that ranking list? You know what I mean? At the end of the day, not not very, not very right. So it's, but it is very important to try to educate a broker on why that's true. It's very easy for a broker to pull up that list and then go to a client and say, I work with the number one or number two or the top five lenders in the country. When maybe the number eight lender in the country would do a tremendously better job hmm. for that broker's business, right? Hmm. If they just understood what working with those companies actually meant and how they differentiate themselves. So there's no way for a broker to know that, right? There is no way. And there only is call it when you're a broker, you have to validate the reason why they you should get paid, right? And yeah. it sounds great to say, I work with the number one lender in the field. Yeah. We do that all the time on the HUD side, right? You know, Greystone is the number one HUD lender um, for the last, I don't know, handful of years, five years, and always been a top tier lender in that space. Uh, we certainly leverage that point. But what does that actually mean to the client? What does that actually mean to the broker involved? You got to educate them on what the difference is. All quality shots that can get it done, right? So I really like the broker business. If your business is high volume transactionally based, I think that that is an intelligent way to go. If you're starting from scratch right now, good broker relationships can keep the volume high with quality opportunities. And if you can educate those brokers, if your niche expertise is a little bit more narrow, you know, it doesn't just have to be HUD loans. It could be affordable housing. It could be, you know, 421As or whatever, wherever you are, right? That is focused on certain niches. Then the direct business is probably a better angle because you can talk directly to those owners at a level where the intermediary may not be expert and therefore 
not necessarily going to be enhancing your conversations at a clip that matters, right? Yeah. Then you got to get out there and you got to get in the room with some other expert, the owner expert, and you as the lending expert, that relationship probably goes further than having a broker in between. But on the transactional yeah. side, a good mortgage broker is, you know, incredibly important and helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you cut out a little bit when you were saying that if you're, if you're doing a transactional business and you said so about what you have to convince the broker about, how do you convince the broker that you are better than the other commodity providers? Yeah. Um, I mean, that depends on what we're talking about, right? So like I, I didn't, so for myself, like a lot of this has to do with the people that you're working with, the processes, the technology, the influence over third-party vendors, not in a shady way, just relationships, right? Yeah. And things like that. And also just a commitment to advocacy, right? Aggressiveness. Yeah. You have different lenders are good at different things in this game, and some are more aggressive than others on behalf of clients in different ways, right? Uh, yeah. That is a real differentiator. Yeah. There's no way to know that by pulling up the ranking list. Yeah. So it's important for brokers to be open-minded when talking to their lender contacts about which lender to go with for that quote unquote agency bucket for whatever that type of transaction is like the specifics yeah. of that transaction. Not everybody falls into the same bucket just because they're the number one lender in the country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, uh, you know, my father, he said that he went to, uh, this restaurant the other week, it was 11 Madison, which is a you know, Michelin star rated restaurant. Yeah. And so he was talking to me about it. He's like, you know, it was just so amazing. It's like just a well-oiled machine and just to see how they present the menus and how they serve the food. Right. So, and he was just raving about it and just talking about how great it would be like, you know, that we should have like kind of a Michelin, you know, kind of a service. So I said, I said, um, by the way, how was, how was the food? He's like, oh, I guess it was interesting. Yeah. So, you know, they serve like 10 different courses. I was like, wait, so you don't really remember the food? He's like, no. He's like, but you can't stop talking about the experience because of the service. Right. It's like, uh huh. <laughs> you know, so it's, but my point was that, you know, I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about like, oh, having like a better debt product or having this or that, or like, what can we kind of like new whiz bang thing we can provide. Right. Yet you can distinguish yourself with the service, you know, and I think with a broker also, it's like, look, sometimes, you know, our industry, we don't do service great. It's not our like strong suit as a, as an industry, right? So lots of times it is the salesperson, it is like the originator that, that has to kind of carry that, right? Cause they're putting out all kinds of fires on the back end and trying to make it look calm on, on, on the front end. But there is, there is a real difference, you know, that there, there's in particular, I feel like what people are looking for is confidence and clarity, right? So you want to have clarity on what's like, what's next? What do I expect? Right. Where, like, where are like, you never want them to, you know, a client doesn't want to feel or a broker first doesn't want to get a call from their client saying, 
what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. We ordered the appraisal, you know, three weeks ago, what's happening. Right? The broker now turns to the lender and says, what's going on? We ordered the appraiser <laughs> three weeks ago. I don't, right. So, so that I think it's, you don't have to do triple backflips even in terms of service, but it's, can you provide confidence and clarity you know, at every step? You know, what, what, what do you, what do you think? You think that any, yeah, I think, to that I think or? that's right. I think that you're, <laughs> you're right on all fronts. We don't do service that well as an industry. There is inherent fogginess and unclarity in what we do, which, which already has everybody kind of on edge to begin with. Yeah. Um, and then you have a lot of the downtime drives people crazy. Yeah. So waiting on third parties, waiting on, you know, certainly in the HUD world, right? Waiting on any sort of clarity from HUD. Good luck. People can't fathom the idea that you can't pick up the phone and talk to another human and ask for a question and get an update after months of waiting, right? Yeah. Like, how is that possible that that's not an option? Like, that they don't answer you, right? Don't you know these people? Won't they? Like, and the answer is no. In the HUD world, that's not the way it works. Yeah. I'm sorry. We have to wait for them to respond. Yeah. And that's so crazy in terms of how business is usually done that that feeling of black hole allows all kinds of bad thoughts to start creeping in, right? Yeah. But it's true in every it's true in every, you know, call it niche of this world. It's not just HUD. Yeah. To keep people calm <laughs> that everything that's happening is normal, that no news is good news sometimes, that I have had conversations along the way. Like a lot of times these things are immaterial or we handle them ourselves and that never gets filtered back. Right. Right. And weeks go by and it seems like nothing has happened. Yeah. Right. Because nothing is ever reported well. Right. There's no good way to do that. Right. Um, but, but the service part of this certainly can get better. And honestly, expectations of, are only going up in every other part of the world, right? So a lot of that now is expected yeah. of lenders, even though yeah. they haven't necessarily built systems to do that yet. Right. But the you expectation know, is is there of, of the expectations a higher, are there. higher level of service. Yeah. It's really pretty amazing. Like even the IRS, you know, when I send in my taxes, it only takes a few weeks to get a refund. Like somehow... They're able to do it now. Yes, it's like kind of just processing a number. Like they, I don't know how much they're like looking at the how much is automated, but it is incredible. Like I don't know. I'm trying to think of like any other service or government department where like you just don't know where you just can't get an answer. I don't know if you were submitting for a patent or for like FDA approval. Like couldn't they still tell you like where you are, where they are, and like reviewing it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's the whole thing's pretty wild. That's the truth, but it's, it's frustrating. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, So you have to recognize that the client's going to be frustrated. You have to be in front of that. Yeah. And, you know, try to prepare them for what's going to happen and what the normal process is here, even if it is totally, you know, backwards or totally, you know, unbelievable for what they would expect. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, you know, in, in Disney world, when they have these big, long lines, 
you know, on for, for rides, but then they have like these TV screens along the way for like entertainment, right? It's like, look, you know, it's going to be a long time, but we'll show you a little clip here, like dancing Mickey, like over there, like they know that they have to keep you entertained as you're waiting, you know? And it's almost like as you're on the, you can imagine like if you're, as you're on the, the HUD queue, like waiting to be seen, you just have little like videos, you know, just <laughs> dancing, you know? <laughs> yeah. It would more be like, uh, here's all the different balloon dates and crazy worlds, <laughs> crazy things that have happened to people d- during maturities of 2010, maturities yeah. in 1979, maturities in <laughs> 2020, yeah. right? right? Where it's like, stay the path, stay right. on the line. That's Don't actually a really good, that's actually a really good idea. It's like, right. Like here's what people, what people said, you know, during in yeah, 2010, I wish <laughs> I would have used HUD. You know, exactly. For, <laughs> right. But that's like an interesting marketing thing. Cause you have to kind of catch people. How do you keep them motivated without, you know, just saying it outright, but like to keep them somehow, you're sending them articles about, I don't know, top 10 companies that were blown up, you know, by loan maturities, right? Like, you know, there, I mean, I, I remember it's crazy in 2009, what, what happened? Like people who had, who made a billion dollars in refinancing their stuff, pulled cash out like with CMBS. And then they lost their entire portfolio without any notification from their lender. Right? It was just like, oh, by the way, we're going to auction tomorrow. That's right. You know? No fault of their own. Yeah. And that's a very, it's a powerful case study in terms of you could do nothing wrong, but still lose. Yeah. Because you're relying on a, you know, this highly convoluted industry that you don't really know. You don't really understand. Like no. you have no control and you have no real way to fully understand what it means to do a CMBS loan. This is true, certainly in 2008, right? Yeah. Of where that loan is going and what would happen in the case of craziness. Yeah. Like nobody thought all the way, not about nobody. Most people did not take that level of thinking and due diligence all the way to that level. Yeah. Yeah. And those people, unfortunately, good people, right? Like that were doing, you know, just nothing wrong, turned around and there was nobody there to talk to. They were alone in the woods. Yeah. And it was just gone and it was just over. Yeah. And, you know, that's a very, very scary, not that distant future. Like you were saying, I've been working in the real estate you know, transactional finance world for 17 years, right? So enough, like I started in 2004. So enough to see the run-up of that, the crash of that, the run-up of the last 10 years, right? Yeah. And not to say that we are in a crash right now, we're certainly not, but a to see the writing on the wall of some, let's just call it choppy times right yeah. now. Um, when people say that we're in a cyclical business, <laughs> um, it's hard to remember that we're in a cyclical business until the cycle punches you in the mouth. Yeah. So it's a very interesting, call it perspective, to go into this business saying, how do I smooth out the cycles? That should mm. be my only goal. If that was my only goal, yeah, um, then I think that you're ahead of the game. Because right. you don't put yourself in the downside risk potential. Multifamily has been an incredibly resilient, you know, category. Yeah. But 
certainly not immune to the cycles. Uh, so how do I flatten that, you know, cyclical curve? That should be part of the goal of every multifamily owner. Right. I don't know if they think of it like that. Right. In general. Yeah. Yeah. Like Ray Dalio, he has a concept of like this all weather strategy. Right. It's like, how do you have a strategy that works all the time? Right. And it requires like rebalancing and whatever, but right. How do you, how do you smooth out those curves? Right. It's great to, to ride it when, when things are, are running up, you know, everyone looks like a genius, but by the, by the way, you said you started in 2004. That's, that's actually 18 years since then, not, not 17. I've never been good at math. It's yeah. Fine. <laughs> <You're> uh, <sure>? <laughs> it's crazy um, that it's been, been, been that, been that long. Um, so I know that you, you started in Marcus and Milichap and Marcus and Milichap, my impression, what, the one thing that they're, they're known for is, is having very good training you know, on the front end. You know, what was, what was that like? What was your training? How did that work? And, and, and also what did you learn from that in terms of, you know, how you think the best training could be, could be done for new people in the industry? Yeah. I mean, that's really one of the main reasons why I, I took the job because I could not afford to go all commission straight out of college. Mm -hmm. So I needed a position that would pay something as a salary um, and offer some training with kind of the hope of then graduating into a, if I wanted to do investment sales, you know, call it full boat, then they would take you off and you would graduate into that commission-based position. but Marcus Emilichap had this great junior broker training position where you got teamed up with a senior guy and you were absolutely everything junior broker you can imagine, right? Um, but they had a commitment to training, which was incredible. So we had Monday morning meetings every Monday with the junior guys that started in like the same class, basically. Um And all the junior guys had the main Monday morning meeting. But before that, we would show up and do cold calling exercises. And, Mm. you know, you know, it was boiler room in its, you know, core, but volume. I mean, this was a time before CoStar, before, right? Like we got the big blue book. You remember that in New York Mm -hmm. City? Right. Mm-hmm. Of just different tax, you know, lot and block numbers. Right. That got that. But you had to it wasn't geography based like you had to only work these blocks, but everybody basically gravitated towards geographies. Um, I ended up working for a guy who was in the national retail group and single tenant group. So we did not focus on New York City stuff. Ours was much more national. Um and it was great uh, because a uh, guy's name is Steve Siegel, uh, still there, phenomenal person who I owe a lot to. And he, I always say Steve Siegel 101 was really important to my career. And, but I started at the same time as Joe Kosum over there on Peter mm-hmm. Vandere's team, mm-hmm. right? And those guys, you know, you know, Marcus and standpoint right now, they've grown that team tremendously and are just a force to be reckoned with. Um, but we started you know, with chairs back to back with the old, put your fingers up, pretend you're on the phone role-playing of you're going to run into this objection. You're going to run into that objection. You're going to run. How do you overcome this? How do you overcome that? How do you get a listing from somebody? And then we would measure our calls. We would measure, 
right? You got to make it measurable and you have mm-hmm. to report back every single mm. Monday. How many calls did he make this week? How many conversations did you have this week? How many proposals did you send out this week? Right. Uh, when you break it down, the game is pretty simple in terms of its volume based approach. Yeah. Certainly at the beginning, but their training was excellent in terms of the basics of real estate, real estate finance, and that kind of stuff. But it was really accountability more than anything Mm. that separated the people who made it and the people who didn't. Yeah. If you, it's not easy work. It is not easy work to make 250 phone calls a week. Wow. And you have to keep the legs, right? To do that week after week, after week, after week. Yeah. And that is not easy. That's a, the stamina that you need for that. The commitment that you need for that, that is not easy work. Yeah. Uh, so Marcus and Millichap has seen, I think a lot of successful people that grew up in their umbrella, mm-hmm. not all of them staying investment sales brokers. Right. right? You can track a lot of principles right now that started in some way, shape, or form at Marcus and Milichap that grew their businesses, you know, outside of that. Yeah. That um, owe a lot of their success to kind of the Marcus and Milichap way. Yeah. Yeah. How much do you think that's done today? Like, yeah, because I think accountability is such a, I mean, look, production management is also not easy, right? I mean, to have someone who's really focused on holding people accountable, you know, but, but I feel like that's become, you know, as, as the uh, generations have progressed, it's harder to, do you think it's harder to hold people accountable to, to that? Yeah, I do. And I think that, I think that technology has made this worse, Hmm. right? Because when I started, email was not the first line of interaction. Yeah. Right. You had to get somebody on the phone and then you had to have the ability to talk to that stranger and get their attention and keep them on the phone and build a connection with them pretty quickly. Right. Uh, I think in today's world, everything starts with email Yeah. or some sort of electronic communication. Uh, and when you get a response to that, then the phone call may happen. Right. Well, now it's harder to the accountability part of this becomes, I think, harder to do because you mm-hmm. have less expectations on, you know, it's easy to send 250 emails a week. Right. It's not the same as making 250 phone calls a week. Yeah. It sounds the same. But it's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. And, and the 250 calls are less likely to hit today. Correct. Everybody has filters on their life, which are different. Don't get me wrong. It was not easy to get people on the phone in New York City <laughs> uh, yeah. at any point, right? Um, cold calling. That being said, people in today's world don't pick up the phone. You know, they don't even have landlines anymore. Right. Right. So like it's, you know, they don't pick up the phone for a number they don't know. They don't return voicemails. Nobody, you know, nobody ever returned voicemails. But like it's a it's just very easy to screen out people that you don't want to talk to. 
Yeah. So it's harder to hold people accountable when the world has changed to an extent. But from a training perspective, you also want to weed out who has that stamina and who doesn't. Right. Right. I think there's as much effectiveness in that because it's like, all right, so maybe, maybe you're not going to have as high a hit rate, but, but show me someone who can make 250 calls a week for six months straight. And you know, that's something that they've got, they've got some fire. Exactly. But I also think that people are afraid to hold people accountable to some extent, right? Right. Finding and retaining good talent is hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if it's a generational thing or just a reality of today's world. Uh, yeah. I, I think that that's hard. Of, it's hard to do. It's hard to find those people that have that deep, you know, fire to keep doing that. Yeah. Are you still making cold calls in terms of your prospect? What are you doing? I do still make cold calls. Yeah. I don't do it to the volume that I feel like I wish I did. Right. Yeah anymore. That's, that's kind of the nature of having a pipeline and dealing with sure. existing and that sort of thing goes up and down, but I still have to, you, you, you have to keep doing that. Yeah. You can't just rely on your network and your existing and that, cause that's great, but cold calling. And honestly, it keeps you fresh and it keeps you talking to people outside of your own, you know, echo chamber, right? Yeah. I don't, I want to hear the objections from strangers. Yeah. More than I want to be talking to all the same people and all the same, you know, folks that I always talk to. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, I do think that one one thing that does kind of cut through the response rate issue of both calls and e- and emails, I think is a referral. If you're introduced by the guys friend or attorney or whatever, like someone who's already has a line in all of a sudden you're, you're cutting to the front front of the line, right? You're like ahead of those other 250 people who have called. Definitely. I mean, there's no question that comes with time and track record and, you know, success and service and all those things where you can build a network of warm introductions because somebody was happy enough with the service you provided to say this guy who I know would also benefit from knowing you. Yeah. That's the important part of adding value to whoever you're working with. Right. Yeah. Uh, But cold calling lets you learn things potentially not that that doesn't, but cold calling lets you learn things that you probably can't learn any way else. Right. If you pick up the phone and call people in a brand new market that you have no connection to, mm. like there's no way to know that the Bank of Iowa is now being really aggressive on construction financing. Right. Until you start calling Iowa developers and you get that response five times in a row. Yeah. That yeah. sort of thing. Or, yeah. Um, so keeping yourself in the market in new places and new ways, talking to people. Um, that is really one of the only good ways to keep your pu- finger on the pulse of new markets and the market in general, that, you know, it's not just the co-star headline, right? That everybody right. reads. Like, right. I want to know that stuff before that hits a headline. Um, 
So on my sixth call into that market, I'm prepared for that answer. Yeah. You're a teacher, but I think you're also very curious. You know, I don't think you want to learn. It's probably true that teachers, the best teachers are also the best students, you know, because like, why else would you become a teacher other than the fact that like you enjoyed being a student, right. And, and learning, you know, so I feel like probably like your approach, you know, when you're talking to people is like, as you're teaching, you're also learning, right. You're also trying to understand, oh, what's going on in that market and really listening, you know, for, for that. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting and good observation, but that's right. Like one of the real, let's call it fringe benefits of this job is that you get to talk to a lot of really successful, intelligent people that are builders and creators and have done really, really well for themselves. (laughs) Um, And you can always learn like it's, 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 it's a pleasure to talk to people like that and see their perspective and see what they did and see how they approach things. Right. Yeah. Because most of the time they think a lot like everybody else, but some of the time you're talking to people that came at it from a totally different angle that you now can incorporate into your own, Mm. you know, repertoire. That's that makes you sound even better to the next guy, but also for yourself, it gives you that much deeper knowledge and appreciation for the business. Yeah. Um, yeah. that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I like it. Well, Joe, we're just about at, at the end of our, of our time, but I really appreciate a lot of what we talked about. I think what, what hopefully listeners can take away, at least in one of the things that, that, that really sticks out for me is this idea that everyone has to find their own path in sales, right. And find their own thing that, that the way that they approach it, you know, and the fact that your path has been teaching, right. And the truth is like, you do things that that other people don't. You're a phenomenally successful salesperson, and you do things that other people don't do. You know, if I had a, you know, some of the, I remember a particular brokerage relationship that that you know we had worked on together, right? And when it came down down to, all right, we have to teach these guys about the product, right? There was only one person who I was going to put in that room to to do that, right? So I think that's really served you well as being that that teacher and everyone like needs to find their path on you know look at what you're very good at and that becomes like your your unique way of doing the business it's really not a one size fits all anything to add to that or or detract uh no i think that that's exactly right i don't think that people should be scared of the word sales because of the sometimes negative connotation that comes across from that sales just means that you get paid for adding value to somebody else's business. That's what that means, Mm. right? They're not going to do it to be friendly with you. But if Mm. you can genuinely find ways to add value over and over to somebody else's business, those business owners will pay for that because it's a worthwhile investment for themselves. Yeah. It's not because you couldn't do anything else. It's not because you couldn't be the head of acquisitions for some REIT, right? right. That, you know, sounds fancier, right? In, in terms of a job posting than a sales job. But sales inherently is adding value to people's business. That's mm. a very noble profession. Yeah. And rewarding. Rewarding. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Joe. I've really enjoyed this. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was great. 
Thanks. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Bye.